podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast. Today is Thursday. It is the 23rd of November. And your weather update today is a grim one. It is horrendous outside. So uh, it is Thursday. International football is over, thankfully enough. <clears throat> We're going to catch up with some of the international stuff. We're going to have a quick look at the Under-17 World Cup. And we will also then do listeners' questions after the break. So let us first start with European Championship qualifiers and see where the lay of the land is after these games have taken place. So from Group A, Spain and Scotland have qualified. Georgia will go to the playoffs as a result of their performance in the Nations League. Norway 
despite finishing above Georgia, are out. And Cyprus are out at no points from their eight games. Uh, in Group B, France and the Netherlands have qualified. Greece advanced to the playoffs. The Republic of Ireland and Gibraltar are out. Gibraltar with no points in that one. Uh, Ireland losing six of the eight games. And in a move that isn't really a surprise, uh, it's been announced that Stephen Kenny will not be retained as Ireland manager. And now the search starts for a new head coach. Um, I'm not really sure where they go with this because there isn't an outstanding option there for them. Chris Hutton would have been that guy, but he's now the Ghana manager. So I don't really know where Ireland will go. Kenny, I think, was very unfortunate. You know, you look at his record, 40 games in charge, 11 wins, 12 draws. That's just not going to be good enough. But I do think when you look at what he's done with the squad, you do have to give him a lot of credit. He's brought through a new era of players. Gavin Basunu, Cuevin Kelleher, Mark Travers, they've all gotten valuable experience under him. Dara O'Shea, Andrew Omabamadeli, Liam Scales, they've all come into the squad underneath him, as is Ryan Manning. He's a little bit older, but he's one that Kenny has has given opportunities to. Josh Cullen, Jason Knight, Jason Malumbi, Andrew Moran. These are very promising, exciting players. Obviously, Evan Ferguson, Troy Parrott, Adam Aday. These are the type of players Ireland will be looking to build with moving forward, along with the likes of Nathan Collins, Festi Ebiselli. Will, Will Smallbone. There's there's a lot of talent here. You know, Sinclair Armstrong is one I'm looking forward to seeing play uh, for, for, for Ireland. Uh, Tom Cannon, if we can lock him in, that'd be a great one to get as well. So I think Stephen Kenny has certainly left Ireland in a better place than he found it. I, I think that's absolutely fair, despite the fact that it didn't go particularly well for him. I don't know where they go. If you look at the previous managers, there'll be there'll be calls for Mick McCarthy to come back. I really don't want that. Martin O'Neill had his opportunity. His style of football wouldn't blend with the, the type of players that are there now. Though he did qualify for European Championships, so that was... That was an achievement, you know. Ireland haven't had some great success in international his, international football. You know, under Charlton, they qualified for uh, three competitions, Euro 88, World Cups in 90 and 94, missed out on the Euros in 92 and 96, and then that's obviously when Charlton retired. Um, Brian Kerr, nobody wants to see that again. Steve Staunton, no one wants to see that again. I mean, Trapattoni did did well at times and not so well at other times. And again, his style of football and then his age would, would rule him out anyway. I mean, Trapattoni must be well into his 80s at this point. He's 84. There's, so there's no previous manager they can go back to. I don't think they'll take the chance again on someone who's only really managed in the League of Ireland. So I think that would rule out the likes of your Damien Duffs, um, who... 
thus far, Damien Duff really does look like he is going to be a, a very good manager. I think he's done an impressive job with Shelburne. But I, I barring name recognition, I, I just don't see it with him. Um, could they potentially go back to the well with, with someone else? I mean, who's out there really? I mean, Stephen Bradley would be the obvious choice. He's been manager of, of Shamrock Rovers now for seven years and perhaps he'd like a change. He's had great success there. He's won four straight league titles. Uh, he's won an FAI Cup, but he's only 39. That might just be too much too soon to jump from Rovers to Ireland. They're probably going to have to look at some someone from abroad. They're probably going to look at have to look at somebody who's out of work. Who that is, I just don't know. I just don't know who it is. So I saw someone today suggest Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer. I can't think of anything worse. Genuinely, can't think of anything worse than the idea of him because he's just dreadful. So we'll have to wait and see. But uh, yeah, interesting times for Ireland for sure. Uh, in Group C, England and Italy qualify. Ukraine are in the playoff. North Macedonia and Malta go out. In Group D, Turkey and Croatia have qualified. Wales go to the playoffs and Armenia and Latvia are eliminated. Group E, Albania end up winning the group. The Czech Republic finish second. Poland advance to the playoffs. Moldova and the Faroe Islands are gone. Belgium and Austria qualify from Group F. And in quite a strange thing, Sweden finish third. Azerbaijan finish fourth. Estonia finished bottom with one point, and yet they qualify for the playoffs because of the Nations League, which is a nonsense. In Group G, Hungary and Serbia are through. Montenegro, Lithuania and Bulgaria are out. In Group H, Denmark and Slovenia have qualified. Finland and Kazakhstan will compete in the playoffs. Northern Ireland and San Marino eliminated. Group I, Romania and Switzerland have qualified. Israel will go to the playoffs. Belarus, Kosovo and Andorra are all out. And in Group J, Portugal and Slovakia are through. Luxembourg finished third. They'll go to the playoffs. Iceland and Bosnia-Herzegovina will meet them in the playoffs or will join them in the playoffs. And Liechtenstein are out. So this is how it breaks down. Poland will take on Estonia and Wales will take on Finland. And the winners of those games will face each other in a playoff final. Israel will take on Iceland. Bosnia will take on Ukraine. The winners will face each other in a playoff in the playoff final. And finally, Georgia will take on Luxembourg. Greece will take on Kazakhstan and the winners will meet in the final. So it should be interesting. These playoffs should be should be quite interesting. Um I would I would hope that the Welsh can find their way through. I think it it you know it's always good when the home nations get in and the Celtic Brotherhood. Uh but Poland I think will be favourites from path A 
In path B, I would say Ukraine are probably favourites. Um, if we end up with a Ukraine-Israel game, that might be quite interesting to see, you know, the the competition between the woke folk to back one or the other. I mean, Ukraine have actually been violated, whereas Israel are the one doing the violation, but you know how people are. And in Group C, it's a shame that it's Georgia versus Luxembourg because they're the two teams I wanted to get to the final, so one of them would get through. Greece will definitely be seen as the favourites, though. They would have to be seen as the favourites. Um, throughout the qualifiers, there were 661 goals scored. Romelu Lukaku was the top scorer with 14. Uh, Cristiano, 10 combination of tap-ins and penalties. Uh, Mbappe with nine, Kane with eight, Rasmus Heusland and Scott McTominay with seven each. Scott McTominay has very quietly become quite the goal-scoring midfielder over the last year or so. Uh, Erling Haaland, Bruno Fernandes and Zeki Mdoni of Burnley and Switzerland with six. Um, McTominay, definitely the surprise among those top goal scorers. Definitely the surprise. Uh, moving on to South America, where the World Cup qualifiers are well underway. And in the most recent round of games, Colombia beat Paraguay 1-0, Uruguay beat Bolivia 3-0, Ecuador beat Chile 1-0, Argentina beat Brazil 1-0, and Peru and Venezuela played out a 1-1 draw. No more games in those qualifiers until September of next year. So a nice long break from World Cup qualification. So six games in, Argentina are top with 15 points. Uruguay are second with 13. Colombia third with 12. Then it's Venezuela with nine. Ecuador with eight. Ecuador would be on 11, but they were docked three points. Uh, Brazil on seven. Brazil have lost three in a row. I think that's the first time ever in World Cup qualification that Brazil have lost three in a row. That's a bit of a hammer blow. And it, it does go to expose that they need to sort the manager situation out quite quickly. Uh, Paraguay then are fifth. They would currently go into the Inter-Confederation playoff. Chile sit eighth, Bolivia ninth, and Peru in tenth. Uh, notable from the Uruguay versus Bolivia game, was that Marcelo Martins, 36-year-old Bolivian legend, um, is retiring from the national team after 108 caps and 31 goals. A very, very good player who never quite made the mark in Europe that you'd hoped he would. He had the talent, but still had himself a very, very good career in South America and in Asia. And uh, he's decided to call time on his international career. So fair play to him. Um, moving on, we'll check out what's going on in Africa thus far. Now, obviously, uh, the African nations do multiple rounds of, of qualification, similar to, to the others. Uh, so only two games played so far. Uh, Group A, Egypt are top with six points. Burkina Faso and Guinea-Bissau have have uh, four, Sierra Leone, Ethiopia have one, and Djibouti have no points. In Group B, Senegal are top with four points, then Sudan with four, 
Democratic Republic of Congo with three, Togo with two, Mauritania with one, and South Sudan with one point. <clears throat> Group C has Rwanda top with four points, bit of a surprise thus far. But South Africa second on third, Nigeria uh, third on two, South Africa second on three, I should say. Uh, Nigeria then with two, Lesotho with two, and Zimbabwe with two, Benin with one point bottom of the group thus far. Group D, Cameroon top with eight points, Cape Verde have, sorry, with four points, Cape Verde have four points, Libya have four points, Angola with two, Mauritius with one, Estwatini with no points. A Morocco top group E. They've only played one game. They've got three points. Zambia, three points. Nigeria, three points. Tanzania, three points. Congo, no points. And Eritrea, they withdrew. They will not take play to take part in the competition. Um Morocco's next game will be against the Congo. And should they win that, they will take sole control of top spot. Group F, Ivory Coast, top six points. Uh, Gabon, six points. Kenya and Burundi have three. Gambia and the Seychelles have no points. Group G, it is Algeria, top with six. Botswana with three. Guinea with three. Uganda with three. Mozambique with three. And Somalia with no points. Group H, Tunisia top with six. Equatorial Guinea also have six. Namibia have three. Malawi have three. Liberia and Sao Tome and Principe have no points. In Group I, Comoros have six. That's quite the surprise thus far. Mali have four. Madagascar have three. Ghana have three. Central African Republic have one. And Chad have no points. So it's very early. Too early to tell, but I mean, you look at the groups, you'd expect Egypt and I think Burkina Faso to come through from Group A. I think Senegal and maybe Togo to top Group B. Now, the group winners, they go through. They will get into the World Cup. The runners-up will go into a playoff stage. Um, But I think Togo or maybe Democratic Republic of Congo to come through in second place in Group B and go into that, that playoff uh, group C, you'd have to make South Africa and Nigeria the two favourites, but Rwanda have made a good start. Group D, Cameroon will be the favourites without question. Cape Verde have some decent players, though. I think Angola have a, a chance to get second place. Uh, group E, it, Morocco will, will run the table in that group, you'd imagine. After them, in Zambia, there's some pretty interesting players in the Zambian team. But whether or not they can actually perform remains to be seen. I mean, Pat Sundaka, we know how good he can be. Lamech Banda, the winger from Lecce, is a good player. Uh, Masondu, who's played for Horsens in Denmark, he's a good player. He's their captain. Kings Kangwa of Red Star Belgrade saw him recently, looks decent. Some quality players, we'll wait and see how they how they do. Um I, they're the team I would guess will finish second. In Group F, I mean, the Ivory Coast will be the favourites. Gabon, probably second favourites to, to come out through the playoffs. Group G, Algeria and Guinea are the two teams that stand out to me. Group H, Tunisia, unquestionably. After that, I mean, Equatorial Guinea have made a good start, so maybe they can keep that up. 
And Group I, you'd be looking at Mali and Ghana as the two who would be favourites to come out of that group. So we'll see. Thus far, Camorras have beaten Ghana. So that's a really good performance and a really good result for them. Um, Of the runners-up, the top four will move into semifinals and then there'll be a final and that will decide the final place from the African qualifiers in Asia. In Group A of the qualifiers, again, there's only two games gone. Qatar are top, then Kuwait, India, and Afghanistan have no points. Qatar have six, the other two have three. Uh, Afghanistan, sorry, yeah, the other two have three. Afghanistan have no points. Uh, Qatar look a very safe bet to come out of that group. They do multiple rounds, so we'll see how this breaks down. Um, Group B, you'd look at Japan and think they'll be the favourites to win the group. They've got six points. North Korea and Syria have three each, and Myanmar have no points. Uh, Group C, it's South Korea top, Thailand and China with three. South Korea have six. Thailand and China with three. Singapore with none again. South Korea should comfortably come through that group. And then Thailand or China, I guess. I, I don't foresee Singapore raising much of uh, much trouble for anybody. Um, group D, it's Malaysia with six, Oman and Kyrgyzstan with three, and Chinese Taipei with no points. Don't know much about any of them, to be totally honest. Uh, group E, Iran, top with four, Uzbekistan have four, Turkmenistan have one, and Hong Kong have one, I would guess Iran and Turkmenistan, Iran and Uzbekistan will fairly comfortably see their way through there. Group F, Iraq are top with six, then Vietnam with three, Philippines and Indonesia have one. Iraq would be strong favourites to come through and Vietnam for now look like the team likely to finish second. Group G, Saudi Arabia have six points, Tajikistan have four, Jordan have one and Pakistan have no points. Saudis should run the table in that group. Tajikistan, I suppose, I'll base that purely on the fact that they hammered Pakistan 6-1, but I don't know how good or how bad the Pakistani national team is. I don't imagine it's very good. Uh, Group H, United Arab Emirates have six points. Bahrain have three. Yemen have three. Nepal have none. Again, the UAE should win comfortably. Bahrain would be my guess to finish second. Um, Group I, Australia with six points, Lebanon with two, Palestine with one, and Bangladesh with one. Australia will win that group very, very comfortably. And we'll all just keep our fingers crossed that Palestine can grab a point every now and then and maybe get second. Because I do think Australia will win all their games. And I think all the other teams are very, very evenly matched. Like Palestine drew at Lebanon, Bangladesh drew at Lebanon. I assume they're all evenly matched. I don't know, but I assume they are. I'd just be hoping for the Palestinians that, you know, they can have some some success and a little bit of joy for their people. Um, so that's where we stand with World Cup qualifiers. We can, we can check out what's taking place with the Under-17 World Cup, uh, which is currently ongoing taking place in Indonesia. I think I've mentioned that before. And we are well into the knockout stage. 
in the round of 16, France beat Senegal on penalties. England lost to Uzbekistan 2-1 in what was quite the upset. Uh, Mali beat Mexico 5-0. Morocco beat Iran 4-1 on penalties after a 1-1 draw. Brazil beat Ecuador 3-1. Argentina beat Venezuela 5-0. Spain beat Japan 2-1. And Germany beat the United States of America 3-2. So our quarterfinals will be France versus Uzbekistan, Mali versus Morocco, Brazil versus Argentina, which I think is always good at any level, and Spain versus Germany. The winner of France, Uzbekistan, will take on the winner of Mali, Morocco in a semi-final. And you would you would suggest that France are probably favourites to reach the final from that side of the bracket. Uh, Brazil, Argentina, the winner of that takes on the winner of Spain, Germany. So this that does appear to be the harder side, though there is a lot of talent in Mali and Morocco. So maybe the French will get upset along the way they struggled with Senegal. They did not look particularly impressive in that game, but they did come through their group fairly comfortably, as did the Germans. They also topped their group with ease. Argentina didn't look great in the group stage, lost to Senegal. That Senegalese team was pretty good, to be fair. Um, Brazil didn't look great in their group stage. They did beat England, but they lost to Iran. So it's going to be an interesting set of quarterfinals, semifinals, and then the final. If you haven't watched any of it yet, I, I do advise going to, to have a look. I think so far it's been, been pretty good stuff. Um, let's do some news and see what news we have. Obviously, yesterday, I didn't mention it, but we did have... We did have uh, news of the Premier League teams voting down the proposal to ban loans from clubs that are associated to those Premier League clubs. Uh, We had eight clubs vote against it. And you won't be surprised by the clubs that voted against it. Obviously, Manchester City who have the City Football Group. They were one of the primary ones to vote against it. Nobody expected anything else from them. Uh, Chelsea voted against it. Again, nobody expected anything from them. Wolves voted against it. Now, I was a little bit surprised by this, and then it was pointed out to me that the owner of Wolves, his wife owns a club in Switzerland. So the club in Switzerland is believed to only be in his wife's name for taxation purposes. So that's that's what that is. Everton voted against it, largely, I would imagine, because 777 partners pushed them to vote as part of the takeover. Sheffield United voted against it. They're obviously owned by Saudi Arabia. So, you know, it's probably worth the Premier League investigating the fact that we have Newcastle owned by Saudi Arabia, 
We have Sheffield United owned by a Saudi Arabian. Where's the money behind him come from? Is that also coming from the Saudi government? Um, we know that Chelsea are getting funding from the Saudi government through Clear Lake. It's a little bit, it's a little bit questionable. The one team I know that didn't vote against it, who would have had interest, actually there was two, to be fair, Brentford and Brighton, both of whom have sister clubs. They chose to vote for this ban. And yet, it, it, it would have negatively affected them in some ways. But they chose to do the right thing. Uh, and vote to ban transfers between connected clubs. Burnley also voted against it. I'd imagine, again, that's something to do with their owners potentially having multi-club interests. So Burnley, Newcastle, Sheffield United, Man City, Chelsea, Everton, Wolves, and Nottingham Forest, whose owner obviously owns Olympiacos. They were the other ones. Um, apparently this has caused quite a bit of anger and people are very, very annoyed by, by what's gone on here. Um, another bit of news, uh, Barnsley have been kicked out of the FA Cup. Uh, they fielded an ineligible player during their first round replay against Horsham and they have now been removed from the competition, which is a little bit strange, but it's the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do. Uh, bad news for Nottingham Forest. Teo Awaniye is set to be on the sideline for months, having gotten injured for Nigeria. Uh, has had to have an operation on his groin. And Steve Cooper said we'll definitely see him again this season. Now, that's worrying considering it's November and the season goes on till May. But he said it's growing surgery, so it'll take a little bit of time. Now, Chris Wood has started to look a little bit better of late. They do obviously have Divock Origi there, though he has not looked good so far. So we will have to wait and see how much of a, of a negative impact that has on Nottingham Forest and their season. There's a good piece on the BBC website about Xabi Alonso and Bayer Leverkusen, written by Emma Smith. So do check that one out. Uh, funny story. Harry Maguire has accepted an apology from a Ghanaian MP who mocked him. You've probably seen the famous clip from the Ghanaian, um, the Ghanaian parliament where the guy likens the collapse of the Ghanaian economy to Manchester United signing Harry Maguire. Um, so he has come out and he has he has offered an apology and uh Maguire has Maguire has accepted it, so that's nice. Uh Jake Daniels is the only openly gay professional footballer in the UK. He's 18 years of age. He plays for Blackpool, a uh, Blackpool, and he says that when he came out, he received a message of support from Jordan Henderson. And he said that Jordan Henderson's Saudi Arabian move felt like a slap in the face. 
And I understand because I think a lot of people have felt that way. And Henderson has shown what kind of person he really is, that all of that was just for show. It was all just for the purposes of creating some sort of image of himself that isn't isn't real. It's all been about propaganda. Uh, there's a piece here about the next Republic of Ireland boss. There's three names here. So one is Roy Keane. I, I would be, actually, there's more than three. I would be out on Roy Keane, to be honest. He hasn't been a manager for a long time. Um, he's been an assistant at both Villa uh, and for Ireland, and also at Forest, actually. But he hasn't been a manager in 12 years, and Ipswich didn't go great. So I would say no on him. Uh, I mentioned Stephen Bradley. I mentioned Damien Duff. Uh, Jim Crawford is the current under-21s manager. I, I would say leave him where he is. I think he's doing a good job there. Uh, Gus Poyet is one. Um, currently manager of Greece. He has declared interest in the job. He's not a bad manager at all, so that could be interesting. Uh, Chris Hutton I mentioned, but like as I said, he's, he's manager of Ghana, so probably not going to happen there. Neil Lennon, I, I really don't want Neil Lennon. Like, I really don't want Neil Lennon. The, after his first stint at Celtic, it's just been bad since. It's just been bad. Uh, he did not do a good job at Bolton. He did not do a particularly good job at Hibs and got himself in some trouble. Um, he was awful when he went back to Celtic. And then he took over with ammonia in Cyprus and he was sacked after seven months. Um, I do not want Neil Lennon. The interesting name here, but I just, I'm not sure he'd be willing to take the job, is Lee Carsley. Now, Lee Carsley is obviously a former Irish international, despite the fact that he was born in Birmingham. Uh, he committed his international future to Ireland, where he qualified due to his grandmother, who's from Cork. He was a solid player for Ireland for the nine years or ten years that he was in the national team's uh, picture. 40 caps. He's been caretaker manager of Coventry. He was the development squad coach at Brentford. Then he worked at Manchester City in their academy. Uh, spent some time with Birmingham. And he's been manager of the England under-21s uh, since 2021, having managed the under-20 team for a year before that. He's done a great job in the English setup. He won the European Championships just this year. He's won 80%, 81% of his games with the England under-21s. Now, that's obviously that's a high-level squad. He's got a lot of talent there. But he has done a really good job. I wonder would he be willing to take the job? Doesn't pay very well. The facilities aren't what you'd expect. They're they're better than they used to be, but they're not the caliber that he he'd have been used to working with for England. Tactically, I think he's quite good. I think he's quite expansive. It's quite funny considering the type of player he was to see the type of football that he promotes his teams to play. It's, 
very much at odds with what he was as a player. Um, I certainly wouldn't be against it. I'd certainly, I'd certainly be very interested to see would he be willing, but I just, I have doubts that he'd be willing to consider it right now. Especially if he thinks he might be in the mix when Southgate goes. And I think Southgate will probably go after the Euros. And Carsley might be next in line because I don't think Eddie Howe is going to be available. Now, Graham Potter would be the other obvious choice along with Eddie Howe. But he might be in a job by then as well. Ireland won't get Graham Potter. They couldn't couldn't attract him, but... I wonder if Carsley just has a look at the landscape and thinks I might think I might just wait this out. I might just wait and see what happens here because maybe one of those two gets approached, doesn't want it, and the other one's in a job and whatever. And maybe it's me. Maybe I'm third in line. But if House at Newcastle now, maybe I'm second in line. And if Potter takes a job in the interim, maybe I'm first in line. Maybe I'll be England manager. And, I mean, you know, the England job's a better job than the Ireland job. You've got far better players to work with. You'll be really competitive in major international tournaments, whereas with Ireland, just getting to the international tournament is sort of the achievement. Um, We'll do the gossip, and then we'll go to break and come back with questions. Newcastle are monitoring Dominic Calvert-Lewin's situation at Everton as the England striker is on their potential list of targets for next summer. Fulham have moved ahead of Liverpool and Manchester United in the race to sign Fluminense's 22-year-old Brazilian midfielder Andre, while Danish striker Jonas Wolf of Wolfsburg is also among their targets. Um, They haven't moved ahead of Liverpool. For Andre, Liverpool have pulled out of any interest in Andre. Uh, a couple of months ago, but, you know, that doesn't get the clicks. Uh, Manchester United are preparing another squad clear out in 2024 with more than 10 players set to leave the club. As many as 15 players could depart United with Jadon Sancho expected to be the first to leave. I love this. This is great. It's great to see. Uh, Manchester United are working, sorry, Manchester City are working to persuade Erling Haaland to sign a new deal, but a agreement with the Norwegian international is not thought to be imminent. Chelsea have joined a number of clubs in tracking Kvitsa Karachgelia. Chelsea are also keeping tabs on Santiago Jimenez and Asana Diaw in, in anticipation of the January transfer window. Now, obviously, this last report has come from uh, football transfers, and it's an exclusive with Jack Talbot just randomly making things up. Um, former Brighton and Chelsea boss Graham Potter has turned down the chance to manage the Swedish national team as he wants to return to club manager. See, this is the other thing as well. Ireland are going to be looking for a manager at a time when other countries are also going to be looking for a manager. And those other countries, no, I'm not saying Sweden necessarily do, but some of those other countries will have a lot more talent, which could be appealing to manager. Sweden obviously have Isak and and um, Kulisewski and a few other really talented players. Ireland have Evan Ferguson and, you know, a bunch of talented players. So maybe we match them. Maybe we don't. 
Arsenal decided to sign a new marquee striker in 2024, but that business could have to wait until the summer window. That is some spoofing from Peter O'Rourke claiming sources. Tottenham's list of potential centre-backs in January could include Mark Gwehi of Crystal Palace and Jared Branthwaite of Everton. That just seems like you're picking two, two popular names at the moment, really. Uh, so I'm not sure I believe that story. Italy midfielder Jorginho is, is in contract talks with Arsenal, but they are at a standstill, according to the 31-year-old's agent. Club America and Uruguay defender Sebastian Caceres has emerged as Tottenham's priority signing in the January trans window. Sebastian Caceres is very, very good. Very, very good. Now, I'm not sure I believe that he's the priority, but he'd certainly be a really good backup to Christian Romero. So if you could get another lefty in as a backup to, I know they've got, they've got Ben Davies there. He's just not very good. I was thinking of the backup in for Van de Ven. That'd be a pretty strong group. Uh, Chelsea are open to selling Trevor Chalaba. That's not news. AC Milan are interested in Benoit Badia-Shile, who could potentially be available on loan, while they've also contacted Arsenal over the availability of Jakob Kivor. Um, I mean, if Badia-Shile has sense, he will try and push for a move out because the promises they made to Levi Cole will mean that there isn't really a future there for him. Eintracht Frankfurt are interested in signing Brighton and Germany midfielder Pascal Grouse. Interesting. Manchester United could be banned from Europe from Europe next season as a result of the expected minority takeover. No, they can't be. That's just nonsense. That's something somebody has made up. American investment partner 777 partners, American investment firm 777 partners is prepared to re-enter negotiations with Everton over the price of its takeover. So they're going to try and get the club even cheaper, which... If I was an Everton fan, I'd be really concerned about these guys. Uh, the FA has confirmed that it's looking into allegations about Jermaine Defoe. We talked about that yesterday. Uh, Jermaine Defoe to Portsmouth when Harry Redknapp was manager. There was definitely something funky going on. We will leave it there. We'll go to break. We'll come back. There's a handful of questions and we'll be done for today. So I will see you after this. Right. Welcome back. So uh, it is Thursday. So therefore, questions day. And we'll start off with uh, Rick M. Who do you think will win the NBA in-season tournament? And just how good is Anthony Edwards? So I think the Boston Celtics will win the in-season tournament. They've been the best team in the in the league so far. Though my Timberwolves have been the second best team in the league, which is very nice and did beat the Celtics earlier this season when the Celtics were unbeaten at the time. Um, but I, I do think the Celtics overall just have... The, the best kind of first six and I think they'll probably they'll probably win it uh, let's have a look and see what the standings are uh, I know that the Celtics are looking favourites to win their bracket I know the Wolves are in a good position for theirs uh, right right now so the Indiana Pacers will qualify for the knockout stage, the Milwaukee Bucks will qualify and the Celtics should qualify if they win their next game. 
Um, the Bucks will be obviously very good, but I, I think the Celtics are just a slightly better team, slightly deeper, better defensively. Um, out West, the Lakers, they've won all four. I just don't see them winning it. I mean, if the Nuggets get there, the Nuggets could win it because they're a great team. Uh, the Kings currently top Group C. They play the Timberwolves next. They've both won both games. If the Timberwolves win that game, which I think they will, uh, they'll go top and should be certain of a, of a spot in Vegas. Um, as it stands right now, the teams who would qualify are Indiana, Milwaukee, Boston, and Miami, and the Lakers, Pelicans, Kings, and Wolves. They would be the teams that would qualify right now. I think the Celtics will win. Uh, as for Anthony Edwards, um, he's great. He is genuinely a great player. He's a top 15 player in the NBA, in my view, because he does it at both ends. He's not only an incredible scorer, and he's added really high-level passing to his game this season. Um, he's a tremendous on-ball defender, like an absolute bulldog. So that's been a huge positive for the Wolves this year. The defense in general has been been great. Obviously, you've got Rudy, who's the best rim protector in the league. You've got Jaden McDaniels, who might be the best perimeter defender in the league. You've got Ant as a point-of-attack defender. You're pretty much set when you've got those three positions boxed off. Conley's a decent defender. Towns is a, isn't Towns is average at best. But as long as he's average at best and Connolly's decent, the other three are good enough to make it all work. I think Ant is a top 15 player in the league. That's that's where I am with him right now. Um the Mauritian one. Lately I've been wa- watching documentaries and shows on Syria in the 90s and early 2000s. So far, I've seen three iterations of Juve, so my question for this week's pod is, which version of Marcelo Lippi's team was better and more complete? The mid-90s squad where you had Baggio, Conte, Viali, and Ravanelli. The second team where he gave the keys to Del Piero and Zidane. Or the early 2000s squad with Buffon, Turam, Nedved, and Del Piero. I would say that that third squad really found their way under Capello more so than under Lippi. I think they were better under Capello, but they were still great under Marcello Lippi. Now, of the others, obviously the first group won the European Cup. So that has to be factored in. Um. They won one league and one European Cup, that first group. Um, The second group won two league titles. The third group won two league titles. And they got to a European Cup final, but the second group got to two European Cup finals. Like, it's forgotten that Juve got to three European Cup finals in a row, won the first and lost two more. I would say the second team. The one with Del Piero and Zizou. I, I think that's the best lippy Juve. Um, let's just pull it up here. Now, obviously, that, that latter team also you know, had 
was probably better in terms of overall strength and individuals. But if you look at this group, you've got Peruzzi in goal. He was phenomenal at the time. Chiro Ferrara was a great defender. Paolo Montero was a great defender. Torricelli was good. You've got Graft in midfield and Delivio and Conte and Jugovic. You've got Christian Vieri coming off the bench. You've got Nic- Nicola Amoroso coming off the bench. You've got Deschamps, more Graft in midfield. Boxic and Del Piero in attack. Sedan as the 10. That's the 96-97 team. And I think that's pretty special, to be honest. Um, won the league by two points from Parma. 97 and obviously got to the Champions League final and finished as runners-up. Uh, 97-98, they bring in Inzaghi, they bring in Daniel Fonseca. Yeah, those two, you know, they lose Boxic. They were happy enough to lose him at the time. They lose Vieri. Again, they were happy enough. Jugovic was one they, they didn't want to leave, but he left anyway. Um, that team also added Edgar Davids. So I'd be inclined to say this is the best team. Like the one that lost the two Champions League finals. I, I would say that is the best team. That mid mid, mid to late, you know, 96 through, I think that's the best team. Going into that European Cup final, I think they were the better team. I think they were the better team the year before as well. You know, if you look at their path to the final, it wasn't the, the toughest in 98, um, knocking out knocking Dino Kiev and, and Monaco. It's not like they beat a who's who, but I, I still felt like that was a really strong team. And then going into that final, I, I thought they were going to win. Uh, the year before in the European Cup, they had romped through their group, knocked out Rosenberg, knocked out Ajax, a very good Ajax team, and then lost to Dortmund in what was a bit of an upset. But that Dortmund team was incredible. If you look back at how good Dortmund were at the time, the back-to-back league titles and then the European Cup, and also so many of that group being part of the European Championships winning team, like they were beaten by, by two really good teams in their, their two final defeats. You know, that Dortmund team were great back to front. And the Real team, when you look at the names in that team, I mean, Ilgner, Panucci, Manolo, Hierro, Roberto Carlos, that's a hell of a defense and goalkeeper. Like, that's pretty perfect. The midfield is unbelievably strong. Redondo, Carambu, Seedorf and Raul. Up front, you've got Morientes and Miatovic. Off the bench, you've got Davor Suker. Now, he came into that game injured. Otherwise, he might well have started. I just remember thinking Juve just seemed so relentless with just how much they worked. Now, Conte wasn't fully fit, and I do think that played a part in that final. Um, And Chiro Ferrara missed the final. So I think that was a big factor in why Juve lost to Milan. I don't think they have such excuses for the previous year, uh, the 97 final. Let's just quickly look at this team. Ferrara played. Conte missed that final too. 
Conte missed both finals. Did he miss a chunk of that season? He did. He missed he missed most of that season, did Conte. So that's obviously a factor. But I would still say that's the that's the team. That mid to late two thousands team is the one I would go for. Um AMK two eight eight nine saw a post the other day at, that Luis Garcia thinks Ronaldinho underachieved more than Neymar. Well, that's just not possible because Ronaldinho was the best player in the world for a spell and Neymar never was. Now, maybe he's saying that Ronaldinho had more potential and could have won three or four. Yeah, you know, he could have. What if he got 10 years out of him? He could have won three or four Ballon d'Ors. That's fair enough to say, but... Like, I don't agree with it. I don't agree with the fact that the idea that we only got three or four years out of Ronaldinho. I just don't think that's true. I think when you look at it, he was great with PSG and he was incredible with Barca. We got seven years out of him. We didn't get three or four. We got seven incredible years out of Ronaldinho. What did we actually get out of Neymar? Now, I know he was really good with Santos. I know that I'm talking about in Europe at the highest level. We got four years. We got four years from him. This idea that Neymar beats Ronaldinho on longevity is a nonsense. Yeah, he was spectacular with Santos. Nobody was watching it outside of Brazil. Just wasn't happening. Back then, no way. He was great with Barca. And, but in truth, he was great with Barca for three of the four years, not all four. And after that, he went into semi-retirement and now he plays in Saudi Arabia. Like Ronaldinho was the best player on the planet. So I don't know how anybody could say that he underachieved more than Neymar. He was the best player in the world. And yes, he only won one Ballon d'Or. That's more a political thing than anything else. Some people just didn't like him. Didn't like the way he played. Didn't like the fact that he was seen as a bit of a showboater. Like, there's no way Cannavaro was a better player than Ronaldinho in 2006. But Italy won the World Cup. And for that reason, he got it. Ronaldinho didn't even place in the top three which was a joke. He should have won it in 04. He won it in 05 and he should have won it again in 06. He should have won three in a row. And like Kaká should have won two in a row off the back of it. One of them was given to Cristiano because United won the European Cup. And then to be fair, every year since, uh, Messi probably should have won it bar one, maybe two years where Suarez should have won it. But it's, it's a popularity contest and it's given to either, you know, someone that scores a ludicrous amount of goals in the case of Cristiano or someone who's part of a team that does particularly well in the case of Cannavaro or Luka Modric. Like, we can't say Ronaldinho underachieved when Neymar 
finished in the Ballon d'Or top three twice in third place, and one of them was a farce. And he never came anywhere close to winning. He never came anywhere close to winning it. Even that those years he finished third. The first time he got 7.86% of the vote. Messi got 41.3%. The second time when the voting thing had been changed, it was just raw numbers. He got 361 points. Cristiano got 946. So there's just no way. There's just no way. Equal amount of European Cups. Ronaldinho was the best player in his team that won the European Cup. Neymar was, at best, the fifth best player. At best. Messi, Suarez, Iniesta, Busquets, then Neymar. Like, Neymar was never the best player on any great team that did anything. Went to PSG, won a bunch of titles, as Mbappe's second. Ronaldinho won a World Cup. Was vital to winning a World Cup. Neymar has done nothing for Brazil in terms of winning. I know he's got the goal-scoring record, but that means very little. Like, what have you actually won? You've won a Confederations Cup in 2013. That's not a real competition. You were Copa America runner-up in 2021. And you won the Olympics in 2016 when you were 24 and it's an under-23s competition. Whereas you look at Ronaldinho and you look at what he did with Brazil, Copa America in 99, World Cup in 2002, also won a Confederations Cup just for good measure. He also won uh, an under-17s World Cup with Brazil which Neymar did not do. Neymar did win a South American under-20s championship, if we'd like to give him credit for that. But you look at what Ronaldinho did in his career, it's just so far and above what Neymar achieved. It just is. Like, he's even won uh, the same number of Copa Libertadores as Neymar. So it doesn't even have that over him. There's just no way you can look at what Neymar's done in his career and what Ronaldinho's done. Because talent-wise, I, I do think Neymar is the closest thing we've seen, but he never came close to the level Ronaldinho operated at. Um, Matt JT, you mentioned in your recent pod you've been getting more into NHL and AFL through podcasts. What have you been listening to, and what teams do you support? So in terms of what teams I support, uh, in the AFL because I lived in Perth, I decided to support the Fremantle Dockers because um, the West Coast Eagles obviously are the more popular, more established team there. And the Dockers were sort of the uh, the interlopers, and I was kind of an interloper as well. So I started to follow them, um, went to a bunch of games when I was there. So that's just sort of drifted off in the nine years since I came home, but I've gotten more back into it the last couple of years. So them, and also the Brisbane Lions, because uh, my cousins grew up in Brisbane. And when I was a kid, they used to come home every couple of years. 
and they'd always have Brisbane Bears stuff, which obviously was the the precursor before the merger between Brisbane and Fitzroy. Uh, the Brisbane Bears were the team, and they both played in the junior team for the Brisbane Bears as well. So, um, sort of got grandfathered in a little bit with that. But my own choice was the was the Dockers. As for podcasts, uh, AFL Trade Radio is one I really like. So listening to that, uh, I like Junk Time. Is that the name of it? Junk Time. That's a good one as well. And the Zero Zero Hanger podcast is really really good as well. So they're the three that I've sort of been listening to uh, AFL wise. In terms of the NHL, <clears throat> the team that I have followed not very closely for years is the Pittsburgh Penguins. Um, it all started the year Sidney Crosby got drafted because I remember I sort of started getting into it the season before but hadn't picked a team. And there was all this hype about this kid that was coming in. Sidney Crosby was going to be the best player since Wayne Gretzky. And there was teams just blatantly trying to lose <clears throat> to land this kid. So I just decided, you know what, he's going to go to a bad team. And my way of picking teams has always been to pick a bad team, which is how I ended up as a Timberwolves fan and a Tampa Bay Rays fan. Um, yeah, so I, I I didn't know whether Pittsburgh were good, bad or indifferent, other than the fact that they were really bad that season. So I picked them. And uh, yeah, been a Pittsburgh Penguins watcher from afar. Wouldn't say fan, wouldn't say anything more than watcher from afar uh, since then. Um, so I've gotten to see most of Sydney's career, which has been great. I watched most, I say. I've probably watched on average 10, 12 games a year, which I know is not a lot considering they play 82, but you know what I mean. Uh, as for podcasts on the NHL, I listen to a lot of the um, the Locked On podcast network stuff. So uh, Locked On Penguins is is one that I do listen to. Uh, I listen to the, the Pensburg podcast, which I quite enjoy. And then genu- general um, NFL, I listen to draft class because I'm just fascinated by by that type of thing. And Puck Soup, uh, I've listened to a few, which I thought was quite good. So that's kind of where I am with those. Uh, moving on, we have one that came in from Mikhail Campbell. Just bear with me for one second. Oh. Well, my day has changed for the worst. Uh, if you were looking forward to the Anfield Index Transfer Committee podcast, tonight it will not be taking place. Um, right, so, uh, Mikhail Campbell, could you do a nostalgia pod or segment on the Brazil national team glory days and the current state of their national team? I will. I'll do that next week. Uh, I will do that next week, no problem. Uh, Stephen Smith, I have a Thursday question uh, based on... Upon positions, I believe, we'll be needing to add to in the next coming windows. Over the next two windows, pick one of the listed players of interest for Liverpool. State likelihood of each, please, and take into consideration when making your pick. Some will offer differing attributes, so further systems and formations will need to be considered. Once done, use each new signing and aside to make so to each new signings to make aside and subs the 2024-25 season. Most days, okay, right, so we've got right back. 
left back slash left side centre back, defensive midfielder, attacking midfielder or winger, add one position and name to those four picks uh, to round it out to five. Okay. So right back, the options he's given me are Jeremy Frimpong, Nahuel Molina, and Ronald Arejo. I would always go with Arejo here because I really like the idea of just having one rock-solid, unbelievably strong defensive player. And Arejo, for me, I think could be the best defensive right back in the world. Um, he's a great centre-back, obviously, but I love him in that right-back role. I think it also gets more out of him on the ball. So I would go for him. Uh, left back slash left side centre back. The names are Lloyd Kelly, Goncalo Inacio, or Valentin Barco. Now, Kelly and Inacio are obviously more centre back types. So again, that would be more defensive. Barco is more attack minded. My my concern with him, I just don't know if he's quick enough to play left back against top opposition. He's a very good player, very, very good on the ball. He could do the inverted type thing if you want them to. But to be totally honest, I would go with Inacio because he's really good on the ball. He's a great passer of the ball. And I know it would be two defensive fullbacks, but I'm not against that. In fact, I'm very much in favour of the idea of Liverpool being incredibly strong defensively. So I would go with... I would go with Inacio. Defensive midfield, Ezekiel Fernandez, Lucas Gorn and Dort, or Abdelai Dekuro. I assume he means Czech Dekuro, so I'm going to go with Czech Dekuro. And I'm going to pick Czech Dekuro here as the signing because I think he's the one that's ready. Um, Ezekiel has huge ability, huge potential, same with, with LGD. But Dekuro is ready now. Uh, attacking midfield slash winger, uh, Bakayoko, Florian Verts, or Pedro Neto. This is tough because I love Florian Verts and Bakayoko looks a hell of a player. Um, I'm going to go Pedro Neto because he can play all across the front line. And I, that's what I want. I want that versatility. I want someone that can play a multitude of positions. So I'm going to go with him. Um, add one more. Let me see. Add one more. I'd add another centre-back. Yeah, I'd add I'd add one more centre back, a younger centre back, maybe someone like Diamande from Sporting. He might be a bit too expensive if we're doing Decure and Arejo and the the two Portuguese lads. Um but yeah, a young centre back is where I would go. Let's I'd go for I think I'd go Lenny Yaro. I think I'll go Lenny Yarrow, the, uh, the centre-back at Lille, 18 years of age, giant, looks looks a real prospect, could potentially be the, the Van Dyke successor that you're looking for. So what that gives me is Alisson, Arejo, 
Canate, Virgil, Inacio. That's my back four and goalkeeper, and that is rock solid. Then in midfield, I've got Trent. I can go Trent right side, Neto left side, Zabozlai and Decoury in central midfield, McAllister and Decoury in central midfield, Jones and Decoury in central midfield. I could play Trent centrally with Decoury, play Zabozlai right, Neto left. McAllister could then be a squad player. I could go with McAllister right side, Zabozlai left, Trent and Decoury in the middle. So you've got a whole bunch of options there. And then up front, you've got Darwin and you've got Mo, and then you've got Gakpo and Jota for depth. You've also got the likes of Harvey Elliott, Kate Gordon, a lot of these younger players, Ben Doak, Bobby Clark, etc., etc. So what that gives me as a starting eleven. Need a piece of paper for this one. Starting 11. So the defense picks itself. I've got Allison. I've got um, Arejo. Canate. Virgil. Inacio. And then behind them, off the bench, because you want to have your depth here, you've got Gomez. Yarrow, and I assume Andy Robertson will still be at the club. Backup goalkeeper. I'm just going to keep Cleaving Keller because I can't be bothered getting into all that mess. And um, my starting midfield, I'm going to have. I'm going to go Trent right side. I'm going to go Alexis and Decoury. And Dominic left side. Mo and Darwin up front. I have Jota and Gakbo. That leaves me with three sub positions. So Neto will obviously be one. Jones will be one. And then the ninth spot on the bench is either. Elliot, Gravenberg, or someone else who develops. It could be Doak, could be Gordon, could be Clark, could be whoever. Coney Doherty. Um, could be Luke Chambers if Robbo. Robbo could move on. Luke Chambers could replace him. You'd have basically Elliot or Gravenberg is taking up that 20th spot in the match day squad. Uh, all the rest would be will be certainly in. In terms of who'd be leaving then, the big name sale I'd look for would be Luis Diaz. Um, if I could get 60, 70 million for Diaz and fund Neto and maybe Yoro from that, then, or or do a, a swap type deal for Arejo. I'd, I'd nearly do a straight swap for Arejo. So that leaves me paying 45 to get Inacio. 
I think about 55 will get Decoure when the market settles, maybe 60. Neto probably 55, given the injuries, contract situation. And Yaro, I'm not sure. Like, he is only 18. When's his contract up? 2025. So next summer, he'll only have 12 months left. So I'd be starting to tap him up. Um, He is one that I think is is a big-time talent. I really do think he's going to be a tremendous player. Very, very impressed with everything I've seen of him thus far. So um, certainly one to consider. You could go with, you know, a, a Tadebo, someone that's more ready-made for certain. Uh, another one I like is Christopher Wu, who plays for Cameroon and, and Ren. Um He'd be another centre-back option for sure. But Lenny, Lenny Arrow, for me, is the one with the highest ceiling. Um, final question then came in from Damien. And if I can find where I took a screenshot of it now, that would be great. Yeah, here we go. You mentioned Trent mirroring, mirroring Veron. It's so obvious that I didn't know how I didn't think of it initially. You've spoken a lot about the Ericsson Lazio team, but can you talk about how Klopp builds that team now and how Trent slash Veron features in that shape? Okay, so <clears throat> get the paper out again. So uh, that Lazio... We can fill in the places that we know. So it's going to be a box midfield. They had an outstanding, an outstanding team, like all over outstanding. Uh, Luca Marcajani was the goalkeeper um, in that squad, and then Peruzzi arrived. So that's who they had. Not bad when you can go from having the third best Italian keeper to the second best Italian keeper. Buffon obviously was the best, but we would have Allison. So there's the goalkeeper. Now, uh, your fullbacks, they were pretty strong defensive players in that team. You had Favalli at left back and Paolo Negro at right back, both of whom were strong defensive players who could play centre-back, but both are very comfortable on the ball. And again, just to go back to what I just talked about, that's where in the Negro side, now at the moment we've got Joe Gomez, so he would fit that role. So if you just want to go with Joe Gomez, that's fine. Let's just put Joe in to make it a bit more realistic. Favali, that's where I would go for Anasio. I think he fits that bill. Um, now, centre-backs, they had Alessandro Nesta and they had Sinisa Mihailovic. Now, we don't have a Sinisa Mihailovic type. You wouldn't really get away with a Sinisa Mihailovic type. Now, if you were to buy someone that could fill that role, Tain Coop Miners is probably the one, but I, I think you're more than good enough uh, to go with Virgil in that role. Um, as a ball-playing centre-back. Now, funnily enough, their other centre-back was also a ball-playing centre-back in Alessandro Nesta, 
but far more defensive minded. But we've got Ibu. So I, I do think that's a good approximation. Gomez, Canate, Virgil, Inacio. The centre midfield pairing for them was Veron and Simeone. So Trent would take the Veron role. We would need to buy for the Simeone role. The most perfect option was undoubtedly Manuel Ugarte. He was absolutely perfect for that role. Unfortunately, we missed our chance to go and get him um, through uh, stupidity, I, I guess, but whatever else you might want to look at. So who can fill that role? He's not quite as dynamic, but I think Bubakar Kamara is a really good fit in that role. Now, look, if it, if Idrissa Gana Gay didn't play for Everton and was 22, as opposed to whatever he is, 34 now, um, yeah, 34, he, he would be a really good pick. Outside of him, I'll just go Bubakar Kamara. I think he's the one that, that fits best in that role. Win the ball, give it to the fellas that can play, keep it simple. Decent little bit of gnarl about him. Stankovic was their right-sided midfielder. Technically excellent, hardworking, always made the right decision. That, for me, is Alexis McAllister. Left side, you had Nedved, the explosive option, the one that could get goals and assists, and that, to me, is Zabozlai. They obviously had Sergio Conceição there at that time as well. As a winger, they could play both sides. So he'd give them a different look. And in the first season, Conceição played more than Stankovic. So you're looking at having a winger who can flip switch sides so you can go Alexis and a winger or winger and Dominic. Dominic can play both sides as well, obviously. But Luis Diaz would fit that Sergio Conceição role. And then up front, uh, where they had uh, Boxic, we would have Darwin as the sort of target man, the line leader. And then they had Salas and we have Salah. Different types of players, but obviously both great goal scorers. So you'd be looking at bringing in Inacio and Bubakar Kamara. It's two players. In the time being, Luke Chambers is probably the best fit at the club to play that Favalli role. And I suppose Curtis Jones is the best fit. If Endo was quicker and like 10% better, he'd be the pick in that whole mid- holding midfield. If we got him like, say, 25-year-old Endo, he'd probably just, he'd fit in as a, as a stopgap. Um, I'm just trying to think, is there anyone else that fits that that role in instead of Ugarte? Because he would have been the perfect one. Um, I mean, if Ollie Skip was good, he he'd be a pick. And look, he's he's decent, but he's not good enough to play for a club like Liverpool. Um, like a Basuma would be great if you could get an Eve Basuma. He he'd be a, a really good fit. Um, actually, let's see who is. Eve Basuma, FB Ref. Let's have a look and see who they give you as the 
but also statistical. Because Basuma's a little bit better on the ball, actually quite a bit better on the ball than Ugart, but he's not, not as good a ball winner. Thomas Parrott. Manu Kone, I mean, Manu Kone could play that role. He offers more on the ball than you need, but Manu Kone could play that role, definitely. Moises would have been great. Moises would have been ideal. But I, I take Manu Kone without a shadow of a doubt if Kamara was too expensive. Kone having having that, yeah, we'll put Kone in. We'll go, we'll go in Ashu and Kone. Get the two of them, and that will work. That will work. Kone will have to be reined in a little bit because he can offer you a lot more, and it's a, it's a little bit of a shame. But Manu Kone is excellent, so we'd be more than happy to have him next to Trent with Alexis and Sabozlai in the more advanced roles. Diaz as the rotation option there. Harvey Elliott, another rotation option there. Curtis Jones, Gravenberg, they can be rotated in and out. Um, defensively, then, you've got... I think you've got a really strong back four. Now, again, I would like, ideally, to upgrade on Joe Gomez, but there's, there'd be no issue playing him there. Darwin and Salah, pretty strong. Gakbo and Jota for depth, Kate Gordon for depth. Yeah, you'd be fairly close to something special there. You really would. But that's what, what you'd be looking to do is you'd look you'd look at your two fullbacks would have to be defensive orientated, but capable of support and attack, not featuring in attack, but supporting the attack, which Gomez can do and Anasio can do. The centre-back pairing is ideal. The goalkeeper is ideal. Alexis and Dominic are perfect for that, those advanced roles in a box midfield. Curtis can play pretty much any of those roles. Gravenberg can play the attacking roles in the midfield. So can Elliot. He could also play off a striker. Yeah, defensive midfielder, just a ball winner. A dynamic ball winner is what you want and that defensive left back. And the rest of the squad is, is absolutely ready to do it. No question. Um. I think that team would press like demons as well. Because when you're pressing with that group, you can send one fullback forward to press and leave the other. So you've still got the three defenders. One of your midfielders, ideally Trent, sits in and protects in front. Kone can join the press. Inacio and Kone. What would that cost? 80 million? That'd pretty much box that team off if, if Klopp was willing to commit to a four-box two. Right, folks, that'll do me for today. I'll speak to you all tomorrow. Take care. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.